Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie anything. Um, today I have 10 questions as per usual, and I've gathered them from the uh, community tab of the Opinions That Don't Matter podcast channel on YouTube. So if you're wondering where I get them, that's where I get them from. And I did my best to try to, as always, to scroll through them and pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. But even when I was scrolling after seeing a bunch of them that only had like one or two, then I saw one that had like 46. So I tried to grab that one. And I don't know if I missed any, and I'm sorry if I did, but please, please don't be afraid to try again. How are you? Just checking in. I feel like this week has been better for me, mainly because Sean and I have made an effort to go out walking. And I don't know something about because it's been sunny, even though it's not necessarily that hot this week here. But just having the sun on my face makes me feel better. So what makes you feel better? Let me know. And how are you doing? Um, Make sure you're making some time for yourself because it's very, very important. Now, let's get into those questions that you have without further ado. So question number one says, hi, Katie, how do you know if you've truly, quote unquote, gotten over a particular trauma? I feel like I've worked through my big ones, but sometimes when I see something that reminds me, I'll suddenly feel very sad, empty, and even creeped out. Does that mean I haven't really healed? Should I be able to see something reminiscent of my trauma and feel pretty much fine? And there was also a comment that just said, how do you know that you've processed everything that happened to you? Now, this is kind of a tricky answer. And I thought about this for a little while and even contemplated reaching out to my friend and colleague, Dr. Alexa Altman, who is a trauma specialist. But because I've known her for years, I can I already kind of know what she's going to say and, and I have my own thoughts about it. And so my first thought is really that when you're triggered, because that's what it sounds like, when you see something that reminds you of it, <clears throat> you'll feel very sad, empty, and even creeped out. You're still triggered. Now, does that mean that you haven't like gotten over it? The way they like to talk about trauma isn't about getting over it. It's more about processing it through so much so that you don't have any emotional charge attached to it. Now, and when I say that, and I'll explain what I mean by emotional charge, but I also want to add in a caveat that just be, because we're human, if something catches us off guard when we are hungry, Uh, haven't slept well, like kind of like the halt, like hungry, angry, lonely, tired. If we're feeling any of those things, we're just having a really tough time, um, which another another word for this, just like our resilience is down or our protectants are down, we can still be affected. So there's never just like 100%, you'll never be affected by anything ever again. I think that is pretty ridiculous because we're human and things in our environment affect us and for better, for worse. And that is just part of us being human. However, when it comes to processing trauma and like getting to a point where there's no emotional charge, that's the goal. And what I mean by that is when you're talking about the trauma or engaging in things that used to trigger you, it doesn't elicit that response anymore. I don't feel on edge. I don't find myself dissociating or feeling panicky or, you know, like you said, feeling very sad, empty or creeped out. That will go away. Now, it doesn't mean that you haven't done a shitload of work, right? Because flashbacks and hypervigilance, those things might be gone. And that is hard work too. And tr- But there's still some stuff that's like hanging around and bothering us. It's almost like when we work through like <clears throat> an eating disorder, we can feel much, much better. However, our eating disorder can still kind of creep up sometimes and we can still do some stuff that is eating disorder driven, but it's like not all the time. And I feel like that's the point you're at where you're like 80% of the time, easy peasy lemon squeezy, but that 20% means that, you know, you can encounter things that are triggering and we don't necessarily have the best tools to manage it. So going forward to answer the question fully, how do you know you've processed everything that's happened to you? It's twofold. Number one is that we feel not as much of an emotional charge when we encounter things like so much so that, you know, like I said, you, you can go about your life and we can tell someone about our trauma and we don't 
dissociate, we don't feel overwhelmed, we don't have any of those symptoms, okay? Then second layer is that when we're kind of down and out, or when we're just feeling a little bit less strong or resilient, we can still be triggered, but we will feel like we have the tools necessary to manage them. Meaning like if I am triggered, if something happens and I feel really sad or empty or creeped out, I know that I just need to give a call to my friend or I know that I need to go for a long walk and listen to this podcast or music or I need to color or I need to pet my dog or I need to you know, force my focus somewhere else. We have some tools and ways that we can cope with it, talk about it, process it and deal so that we don't let it bother us anymore and like work its way back in. Because a lot of the work that we do in therapy, trauma related or just anything related has to do with our thoughts and what we allow to spend time in our brain. And so having those things come back in is almost like a knee jerk reaction. And we need to be like, nope, not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to do this and focus on that. And so I hope that kind of helps, excuse me, helps it make more sense to you because it is kind of twofold. And I think so often we assume that, well, I've worked on it. And I feel better. So I think it's all gone now. And we can encounter things that are triggering. And I feel like that, unfortunately, that's just life and being human. Like I still have stuff that's upsetting to me for the stuff that I've worked on in therapy. And I have to remember to use my tools. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But it is much, much better than it was. And I think that's where you're at. It's like much, much better than it was. But sometimes when our defenses are down, we can feel a little triggered. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. You guys, let me know if you have follow-ups. I'm happy to continue talking about this. Okay, question number two. Any advice for someone who's having a hard time accepting themselves as a lesbian? I love this question. I was raised in church being taught that it is wrong. And so after a while, you start to feel wrong. I know I'm gay and I want to be able to live my life and not care what others think. More importantly, how I think of myself. Any tips on coming out when I have a family, but one that would um, not be accepting or a tip on my um, on my siblings because they keep asking me if I have a girlfriend. I keep saying, no, I'm not gay. It makes me so uncomfortable when they ask. I want to come out. It's just really weird for me. I know you've said that you don't ever have to come out if you don't want to. Very true. But I want to. And I'm in a physically safe place to come out. Oh, it actually says when you have a family that would be accepting. So... <clears throat> I guess it's just the church and kind of like the brainwashing of religion for better, for worse. I don't mean, I know brainwashing is always used in like a negative connotation, but when it comes to church, it can teach us, you know, morals and best ways to engage with other people and stuff like that. But it can also cause this. The truth. Okay. So tips for coming out. I think the the biggest part of it is like accepting it for yourself first, because like I've talked about, we don't have to come out if we don't want to. It sounds like you really want to come out as well. Um, and that's just, that's something you want to do for you. And I understand that, like being able to live as yourself, being you. Do you know what I mean? I think that's that's something we all desire. Totally normal, totally a human thing that you should be able to have. But in order to get to a point where you're you feel okay saying it out loud to people who are important to you, I need you to feel good about it as well. And so part of that, I think, is noticing that talk, that self-talk. So if you feel like something's wrong with you because that's something you've heard in church and you notice those thoughts, what are those thoughts? Like, first, let's identify them. Are they thoughts like, you know, it's so I'm such a bad person or something must be wrong with me or maybe I just need to pray it away or whatever church has told you, I don't know. But I want you to identify those thoughts and those beliefs that you have. I want you to write them down. And then let's start like kind of checking the facts. So do we have anything to support the fact that we're quote unquote broken or something's wrong with us or any of the shame feelings that are coming up or maybe guilt? Like, I don't know why I'm doing this. You know, I feel so bad about it or whatever. Um, Let's check our facts to see if we have anything to support these feelings other than, I mean, the church stuff is one, okay? So we've heard it from those people that, yes, it's bad. But what are your other facts to support another way of thinking? And then let's dive into that and move those thoughts into a more balanced place where like, you know, it's possible that being gay is okay. I feel okay about it. I have lots of other people I know of in the world who are living happily and healthfully as part of the LGBTQ plus community, okay? 
you know, maybe we can kind of move our thoughts and our beliefs about this into a more neutral or balanced space. And then just keep moving it into more positive thoughts. Like I know right now you probably can't entertain this, but my goal for you would to be able to have the thought, you know, I have a crush on this girl, right? Or something like that. Like just like anybody would. Oh, I think they're so cute and so funny and so smart. Oh, and to have that be it. And to think this is so wonderful to have a crush, to get excited, to be in love, to to be gay, to be a person, to have relationships, right? To be able to have those thoughts and not have them be completely thrown out with the negativity that kind of swirls from how we were raised. So <clears throat> that's the work that I would like you to do on your own is just notice the thoughts and beliefs you have about being gay in relation to church and the way you grew up and challenge them. Challenge them with other healthy, happy individuals, you know, like my friends, uh, Caleb and Cameron, for instance, if you don't know their channel, they have a channel called the Fitness Marshall that they work on together. And they're a happy gay couple. And they also go to church in Los Angeles. And yes, I know I live in LA. And we are very free to be you and me, baby, you do whatever you want. And everybody supports it. You know, <clears throat> I feel very fortunate to live in a city like that. But you can have both church and be gay. And I just kind of want to throw that out there because I think too often we think it's one or the other. And I, I'm in a city and in a situation where I can tell you that that's not true. And especially now, because everything's online, I would encourage you to maybe find a church, if you still want church to be part of your life, to find a church that is like what I would call sex positive or LGBT, like a a partner for you, you know, in that community, whatever, <clears throat> whatever works for you, but just throwing that out there too. And I think then when it comes to actually telling them, so we've done all this work on ourselves and we're starting to feel a little bit better and we can start to put language to what we want them to know. Start writing out how you would say it. What are you going to say? How would you want to say it? What kind of language do you want to use? Do you want them to know? Do you want to use the word lesbian? Would you prefer to use the word gay? Do you want them to be able to tell other people? Do you not want them to be to tell other people? Why? You know, a lot of times I find when we tell friends and family, First of all, they say, oh, I know <laughs> that happens so often. Yeah, I've known for a long time, you know, the other times they might need some time to digest this. So we have to be able to give them that time after we told them. But the third is a lot of them just want to know. And this is the most common is we just want to know what to do or how can we support or, you know, they want to be supportive and they might not know what to say. And so part of me wants you to make sure you set that up for them where it's like, Hey, I just wanted you to, I wanted to talk to you about something. It's been on my mind for many years. And I, I just wanted to, to tell you because I want to be able to be my most authentic self around you guys. And that authentic self is someone who's gay. And I know that it might take you some time to, to understand what I'm saying and digest it. But really all I'm looking for is just some, some acceptance and seeking to understand how I'm feeling and what's happening something like that. Keep it very simple. And then, you know, even if they don't re respond well, it sounds like you think they will. But even for those of you out, who are out there who are worried you're, they won't respond well, make sure you're okay giving them time. That's why I threw in that part of like, I know it might take you some time to figure out how you feel about this. Unfortunately, not everybody responds with, I know, or I love you anyways, or, or I love you because of it, or you know what I mean? Some people just don't know how to respond to that in a way that feels good. Unfortunately, parents and other people can have their own judgments or or be shocked and not react well. And so when we do that, we have to be able to give them time. And that can be the hardest part. And that's why I just want to like, it can be the hardest part. So prepare yourself for it. But that's why telling them just a couple things about it, why you want them to know, and then what you need from them or what you would like them to do. A lot of it's just support me, seek to understand, you know, or I just wanted to tell you because now I feel like I can be honest with you and myself at the same time. And that feels good. I don't want to keep lying to you. That could be another reason. Any of that. But practice it. Say it out loud so much, like in the car, maybe for a little privacy, or if you can do it in your bathroom in front of the mirror. Say it out loud so many times to yourself that it's like second nature, where even if we feel stressed out and overwhelmed when we go to do it, because I don't know what it is about finally telling someone something, we just get overwhelmed. And so instead of you know, we want to make sure that we don't, our mind doesn't go blank. And we're like, wait, what was I going to say? I want you to spend time saying it so much so that when you go into that situation, you can just say it 
without even honestly having to think about it. And then, you know, again, be open to conversation. You could even consider before you talk to them, like, what do you think they're going to ask? What kind of questions do you think they'll have? And, you know, am I, can I give them the time to digest this? It, a lot of times our parents just need a couple of days to come back around and tell us what's going on and how they feel about it. Sometimes in the moment they react negatively. And if we can allow for that to happen, which I know is hard, and I wish this didn't happen ever. I wish a parent was like, I know, and I love you, you know, so accepting. But sometimes it's like, oh, well, I mean, you're still my child, but I don't agree. Or they could say all sorts of shit, you guys. But we have to be able to just let it sit and say, you know, I'll give you time to think about it, but I'm here if you want to talk. So you're just, just letting it be. And same goes for siblings. I think, um, I think it's just like preparing what you want to say and then saying it. And I, I truly think that because of the way this, this question's worded, and I could be wrong, but it sounds like once you do this, you actually feel so much more free because it sounds like your siblings already are asking you and like assume. So they're going to be the ones that are like, I, we already knew and we love you, you know, parents probably be accepting. It's, it's your internal acceptance. That's why we got to work on that self-talk. And there was a comment at the end of this question where they said, Hey, Katie, I was wondering if you could give some advice on how to tell your parents about your sexual orientation without feeling like they won't accept you or fearing your parents' reaction. And again, I just wanted to read that out because I wanted you to know I saw it. And hopefully throughout the answer, you've kind of seen that it, it, it comes from our own, our own acceptance of, of our sexuality, our own acceptance of who we are. And a lot of that has to do with that self-talk and the way we prepare for it. And I would encourage all of you, if you have the accessibility or the, I guess the ability at all to, get online and see a therapist who is like sex positive or part, you know, part of the LGBT plus community or, you know, um, I have a book I bought years ago about, it was like how to be, how to be a sex positive therapist or how to be an LGBT positive therapist. I forget what it was called, but it was like for the straight therapist. There's so many resources out there and hopefully you can find a therapist in your area who, who can, be that support for you as you try to put language to this, as you try to heal maybe the wounds or the the anxieties of our youth when we're coming of age and figuring out our sexual orientation. And maybe we got bullied or maybe we grew up in a church that told us it wasn't okay. You know, there's all these things. We have to kind of process that through. In some ways, it can feel like a trauma to us. It can feel very overwhelming and and lead to a lot of shame and embarrassment and guilt. And so we have to process that through and learn to slowly accept who we are, change the conversation we have with ourselves, and then and only then will we be able to come out to our parents without fearing their reaction or worrying they won't accept you because then it comes from a place of, I know who I am and I am in love with who I am and I want you to be too. Instead of a, I'm telling you and, and hoping that you accept me. You know what I mean? It, I know that sounds weird or maybe doesn't make any sense, but that's when we're looking for acceptance outside of ourselves and and that acceptance has so much value that it can erode and change who we f- how we feel or who we feel we are it's not safe we need to have complete acceptance as much as possible cuz it's never like 100% right we're always like trying to be better and there's certain things we maybe don't like about ourselves but accepting our sexuality 100% and then going to our parent and being open to the fact that maybe they won't but we know we'll still be okay And again, like giving them that time to digest. And I wish I had a better answer, you guys. I wish I was like, this is the magic way to say it. And parents won't be dickwads and won't say things that are hurtful. But sometimes people just don't react well or have their own set of judgments or issues. And, you know, we can't control other people, but we can control ourselves and we can make sure the conversation we have with ourselves about our sexuality and our relationship with others, we can make it a better one, a healthier, happier, more balanced one. And then... We can allow people into our world in a real way so they can see the real us and we can feel like we can feel free to be the real us. And I'd also just encourage you to, if you need extra support, there is a group for everything on Facebook. Also, there are a ton of like Reddits that I follow that are like LGBT plus just sharing like things that they can't share with other people. I'd encourage you to connect with those communities. The Trevor Project, if you're out there and you're having a really tough time and um, maybe struggling with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. The Trevor Project is there for you 24-7. They're a wonderful organization. I've given money to them over the years. I want, like I support what they do wholeheartedly. Check them out, reach out. They have uh, text availability, calling, online chat, all sorts of stuff. So the Trevor Project, you can check it out. Um, that'll be really helpful. 
Moving on to question number three. It says, I get distracted super easily working from home, which means completing a task takes longer than it should, which sometimes means working later into the evening. My productivity has dipped significantly, and sometimes I feel bogged down because simple tasks tasks take forever to complete. It's almost a tongue twister. Could you suggest tips for sharpening my focus? I think we get distracted super easily when things are really fucking boring. Can I get an amen? I think that's just true. And so part of me feels like you're maybe trying to force yourself to focus on something really stupid and boring for way longer than your brain can. And so something that I do, and somebody actually left a comment below this. So if you want to look in the community tab, you'll see this person's comment. They did a great job breaking down how they've managed this and things that they can do. Um, but something that I find works for a lot of my patients who, and I'm not saying this person has ADHD because I don't necessarily think that's the case, but for my patients who have had ADHD and I've worked with them through this, having lists and breaking things down into chunks of time is really, really helpful. And the lists are like in the morning, I'd like to accomplish these two things in the afternoon, I'd like to accomplish these two things. And then, the, you know, after in the evening, I want to accomplish, accomplish these two things. So you can kind of break that down. And then I want you to because that's why you'll have a couple of items in the morning. You can put them all in a list. It doesn't really matter. I'm just giving you one option. But don't try to focus on one thing for maybe more than 20, 30 minutes. I know you're thinking, well, I just want to finish this already. Your brain can't keep focus that long. And actually, just FYI, the average brain can only focus for 30 to 45 minutes at a time without needing a break. And they say we need like 10 to 15 minute breaks. So every hour you should be taking a little bit of a brain break. And no, I don't mean brain break. I'm going to go on my phone and zone out for a while. No, I mean brain break. Like I'm going to stretch. I'm going to move my body. Sure, I can check my email and check my phone and do some other things too. But I want you to stand up. I want you to stretch. I want you to have a drink of water. I want you to give your brain a little bit of a break from focus. Let it wander off and I wonder what so-and-so is doing, you know, let it do that. Then we bring it back and we start again. And you can start again with the same thing or you can go on to something else because maybe that one thing you're working on, it's too boring already. And we need just to do something else for a while. And that's why we need to have those lists of things so we can pop between them. And it sounds silly and you're like, but I'm losing time. Nope, you're losing time because you're forcing it. And sometimes it's better just to pop in between things and work on, okay, I'm going to do like, for instance, if I was breaking down my, my process for a podcast, I'd say, oh, I just am having a tough time focusing. Okay. For, for 20 minutes, I'm going to gather the questions. Okay. So I start reading through the questions. I start looking for the thumbs up. I start copying and pasting. Hey, what do you know? I'm done in 15 minutes. Okay. Now I'm going to give myself a 15 minute break. Okay. I know that wasn't 30 or 45, but Hey, I finished that one thing. Okay. Check that off my list. Next thing is I'm going to read through them and make some notes because I make notes in here so that I can follow my own train of thought or if there's something that I've read or an article I want to link to, I put it all in there. Okay, so maybe I only get through like five of the questions because it took me 30 minutes just to do that. Okay, then I'm going to take a break. I'm going to move on to something else. Maybe instead of going back to podcasts because wow, I've been focused on that for two things now. Maybe instead I'm going to hop on to, I don't know, uh, my email because I need to reply to a few things. I do that. You see what I mean? I'm just popping back and forth from things, spending little chunks of time. You can set timers on your phone to remind you so you know when that time is up um, and play around with the amount. Could be 30 minutes, could be 20 minutes, could be 45 minutes. Everyone's different. But I would just encourage you to do that. And every day, have your little list of things and each thing needs to be manageable within like a, you know, an hour so that we can check that thing off. Some things are going to need to be broken down into more bits. Like recording a podcast is going to take me over an hour. Okay. Well then afterwards, I'm probably going to need to take quite a brain break because I'm going to be really maxed out. I, I know this sounds super tedious, but breaking our days down, working with instead of against our brains helps so much. I, I attended this event. I wish I could just have filmed it and shown it to you guys, but it was something through YouTube at YouTube space. This is years ago before COVID, which is going to be something we're going to have to say now pre-COVID. Anyway, it was about creativity and how to work with your brain. And essentially it was like that you can't overwork it. You can't fo force it to focus. It won't focus well. And to that end, and that just sparked a thought is I remember the gentleman who ran the course, amazing, super talented guy. He was saying that each of us has a different window in our day where we think best and we get, we're super productive. It's like our productivity window. And they're usually, he said like, I think it's like three to four hour chunks. Now he is a morning person. He said he's most productive between six and 10 a.m. 
Me? Uh-uh. I am not a morning person, but I'm also not a night owl. I don't like to work way into the night, like into 2 p.m. or 3, or 2 p.m., <laughs> 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. Can you imagine? Anyway, I'm an, I'm a midday person, which he was like, wow, you're really lucky because that works with the our work system, essentially the, the best, right? Because he's like pooped by lunch and other people aren't even getting revved up until it's time to go home. So anyways, figure out where your window is. Is it early morning? Is it midday? Is it, you know, like I'm honestly from noon to 4 p.m. I'm cranking. I'm going. That is good times for me. Anything before noon, I'm okay, but it's just not ideal. I'm not at my best. Um, some people don't even start getting excited about work until 6 or 7 p.m. So I know that not all work allows for this, but just work with your brain, not against it. If you can, if your work doesn't care when you're working, as long as you like get your shit done. Maybe we work late at night. Maybe we work really early in the morning. I don't know. But also doing that, I think, can help too. And I could obviously clearly talk about this forever, but let's move right on to question number four. Question number four says, will the pandemic create generational... Oh, and also, sorry, moving back to question number three. I apologize. Another tip that I want to add in here, and I have some videos about productivity. I think if you just probably get on YouTube and search Katie Morton... Uh, focus or Katie Morton productive, it should come up. Um, or Katie Morton school, I probably it might be uh, tagged with school as well. I try to tag things so we can easily find them. But you guys let me know if you can't find them. But the another thing to help sharpen our focus is to not mix areas. And I've talked about this because psychologically, for some reason, it's adaptive, but our brain gets used to focusing in certain areas of our home. Like right now, I'm sitting at my di- uh, dining room table, I do not do any work in my bedroom at all period. I don't work from bed. The most work I do in bed is actually I read a chapter of a book, not workbook, fun book, chapter of a book before I go to bed. And then in the morning, after I've been up for a while, you know, like waking up, I might check my email, but that's all. And the reason is, is because I don't want my brain to associate my bed with work because then when I want to sleep, guess what? My brain is humming along with to-do lists. And so create a space, even if it's just a small nook where you can sit down and you can focus and you can work and don't do anything else. You know, make sure your work area is your work area and don't mess up your bed area. Okay. Just throwing that out there because mixing of our areas makes it hard for our brain and body to know what to do in that space. And it can take us longer time to get adjusted and to focus. Okay. Now moving on to question number four. This is a great question because I've been wondering this and reading about it. And frankly, there's not enough research, but I can definitely make some, I don't know, not necessarily just assumptions, but based on past situations, I can draw some correlations and some conclusions. Now, the question is, will the pandemic create generational trauma over time? If so, how can we be aware of that toward the future? Now, there was a comment on this as well that said, oh my God, yes. I think about my grandma who lived through and raised a child in the Great Depression and her response to food and hunger throughout her life. Yeah, my great grandma was that same way. Um, the, uh, it says dementia patients in general struggle with appetite loss and remembering to eat. But when her Alzheimer's got bad, she started to enter stage three. She would say, I'm hungry, but I don't remember if I already ate today. So I su- should just wait until tomorrow. Since in her mind, eating again would be stealing from someone who hadn't. Even now in the midst of it, sometimes I have a visceral reaction to faces. When I watch a new YouTube video, I see someone, even if they're alone, if they don't have a mask on, I flinch and get anxious or angry. I have to remind myself that they are alone. They aren't here with me, etc. Are we raising children who will constantly be washing and sanitizing their hands? What effects will this have on our society in the long run? I worry about this daily, you guys. And I, I don't like to be a Debbie Downer or bearer of bad news, but I, I do worry about children most now for adults. So just to give you an idea and I, I will do more research and I probably will come out with a video about this, but I really want to do a deep dive before I, you know, uh, create a video saying something like making a statement. But I do believe that first of all, this is a trauma response that we're in, right? We're in a, a sustained stress response for going on now almost, I mean, it's like 10 months and it'll soon be a year, you know, and there's no end in sight for us in California. We're still in lockdown for at least like this hardcore lockdown. You guys, it's like fucking crazy for at least another two and a half weeks. And then we'll see where we're at. But 
I, I'd assume they might have already extended it. I don't know. I can't even keep up with it, right? But I definitely think that we will feel this trauma. And I think this trauma could be passed down, especially with the hand washing and the sanitizing and the face mask wearing and all of that. However, there is hope, okay? And I'll get back into it a little bit more, but I want to offer a little ray of hope because I get I get bummed out myself talking about this. But I think the way that we can heal when we have a shared trauma or a shared devastation is we can share it with each other by talking about it, sharing in stories and sharing in the pain together. Cause I talked about that. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned on the podcast, but I know I've mentioned other things where it's like that old adage that when you get married, they say it about marriage, but I've always thought it relates to all relationships in life is that, you know, when you have a true connection with someone, every happiness is doubled and every pain is halved. And just think about that. You know, every, every happiness is doubled and every pain is halved. I love that. And I really want to lean into that during this time because we know that true connection with people who understand us does stop, if not at least lessen our stress response. It's the, you can look it up. Uh, Dr. Stephen Porges did a bunch of, uh, it's called the polyvagal theory, did a bunch of research on it. It's your vagus nerve and this third response that they weren't aware of until, I mean, it's been a while now, but recently, let's say, they found that connection actually really helps soothe our system. And I think we'd all agree. Yeah, making eye contact with someone we love or having a hug from I mean, hugs, man, God, I miss hugs. Uh, Right? Like, those things are important. And we need that to help us calm down. And so I think that that's how we ensure that we like heal from this so that we don't continue to pass the trauma on. And just, yeah, letting our children talk about it, letting them process it. I've been telling, I was on my friend Christina P's podcast a while back and I was sharing that, that we need to like be open with children, let them talk about what they're worried about and that maybe they miss school and explaining to them what this means. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we process it together, the better we all will feel. But unfortunately, as we all know, not everyone is comfortable talking about how they feel. Not everyone shares what's going on. Um, but we can do that for our children. We can do it for ourselves. And I think that that will make us all better. But I do believe, and this is just my final thought about it. I do believe that this pandemic is going to, we already know a depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction, overdoses, all of those things are up and the percentages are varied, but they're all up by at least, I want to say it's like 22%, 25%, uh, 36% I think was suicide. I mean, it's just crazy. And I, I I'm don't trust my statistics because I'm pulling it from like a memory, you know, like a, an article I read like a month ago, but they were all up in double digit numbers. And so I just want you all to be aware. And I believe that that ripple effect will take some time to heal. But just like anything, I believe that with, with conversation, with sharing in it, and like I'm working on a project behind the scenes that you guys will hear about soon about just like honestly spreading more good, spreading more positivity because we need it now more than ever. And people are feeling angry. And that's what we're seeing more of is like more drama, more gossip, more shit talking, more trolls, more just anger. And I think if we can all do our part and be kinder to one another, I think we'll all feel better. And we'll all heal more quickly. Because just like we we're talking about at the very beginning, the number one, the first question was about overcoming trauma and healing from it. And I, we can do that. We just need the right support. We need to talk about what's happened, so that it doesn't have an emotional charge for us anymore. And Frankly, we can do things to help ourselves feel better now, but the healing actually can't begin until we're out of this threat zone. It's like trying to overcome an abusive upbringing while still living in it, right? You're still being abused. You like it, it's it's like trying to it'd be another good example would be like it's trying to overcome an illness when you keep getting infected, right? We can't. So we have to wait until we're out of this like pandemic situation at least somewhat, it's not like back to normal. But once we can, we feel safer, and we feel better and things return to somewhat some semblance of normal, then we can really get into the healing. But right now we need to share with one another about how we're doing, how we're feeling. It's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to be angry. But just talk about it. Don't don't uh, damage other people with your feelings. Okay. And it's hard. I understand. I've been, I, I honestly have been wanting to cry a lot lately. Again, I'm going through wave number like what seven. So know that it's okay. I'm in it with you. If I talk about too much, I'm going to get teary here. So let's move on to question number five. It says, hi, Katie. I hope you're taking care. I am. 
Are gaps in childhood memories always related to trauma and abuse? I'm always in awe when people tell me elaborate, detailed stories from their childhood, but for me, I don't remember much of it at all. In fact, I didn't develop a strong narrative like a strong narrative like memory for my life or a strong sense of self until after the age 14. I do believe I was very stressed and depressed as a child, but could these factors cause me to not remember segments of my childhood entirely? Thank you for all you do. And there's a comment on this about the opposite, like the reverse. So we'll get into that afterward. But let me get a drink of water. Um, because I thought this was a great question. And we always think it's related to trauma. And the truth is, it's not. Um, And that's my bad. Like, I think that I've probably uh, caused you to think that. And I just want you to know that I was incorrect. And I shouldn't have caused you to think that I should have been more clear. So in children, also, okay, there's a lot. (laughs) First of all, all that needs to happen for us to struggle with memory is for us to feel overwhelmed. I know, that seems like not much. And the thing that I want you to remember is as children, things that are scary to us or traumatizing. Remember, traumas occur when we feel like a threat of our own life or the life of someone else. And we are so overwhelmed, we have no way else to cope and we can dissociate in our brains like, oh, and that's a trauma. It can be so scary. We don't, we we feel helpless or hopeless, right? We can go fight, flight, freeze. So it pushes into our stress response. And usually the freeze when we can't, and children often can't fight back, right? We're too small, we're too weak, can't fight back and we can't always get away. And so we go into freeze and freeze is really where we believe you, uh, you can read like somatic experiencing and uh, Dr. Peter Levine talks a lot about it, but he believes that freeze is where trauma comes from. And I agree with that um, feeling or that statement. And so when it comes to that, it it doesn't necessarily have to be abuse and trauma. We just have to go into freeze. And if anybody has ever been scared, you know, you can go into freeze like so easily, so quickly. That was a horrible snap. I'm sorry if you guys are listening. You're like, what was that noise? That was me trying to snap, but my fingers are dry. <laughs> um, So going into freeze or feeling overwhelmed, because you said you were very stressed and depressed as a child. Well, there you have it. I know that sounds so simple to be like, well, that's what happened and that's what caused it. But that that is what caused it. And that's what happened. And that's why it took you until the age of 14 to to have like full narrative memory and to feel good about yourself. A lot of people struggle with that. One of my close friends remembers being anxious and holding on to the carpet as a little kid, like a year and a half, two years old, like, cause not like not really walking, walking, you know, just gripping to the carpet and feeling like he was having his first panic attack. So of course, like maybe there's chunks of that, his early life he doesn't have any memory of, not to mention just FYI, most of us, it's very normal to not have much, if any memory before the age of five. It's just developmentally, everybody's a little different. Some people be like, well, I remember something when I was like four. And you're like, well, maybe your brain was just developing a little more quickly than others. But it's around the age of five that we're able to form long term memory. Therefore, you know, things might be lost in translation, like it never made it because we were too little. So that's okay, too. Don't think that something's wrong with you because of that. But I just want you to know that that being very stressed and depressed as a child is enough for us to struggle to form memories. Because again, stress, the stress response, fight, flight, freeze, if we're pushed into freeze because we're too overwhelmed, there you have it. And now someone asked a question on this that said, I'm also curious about the opposite. I had a very strong sense of self and developed a deep narrative memory starting around when I was sexually abused at the age of five. What is considered normal childhood memory? Trauma's this is an interesting thing about trauma. When I read about it uh, for my book that's coming out this September, everybody's different. And I, I hate that answer, but it's so true. Some people repress because it's adaptive and it's the way that they cope. Other people have like hard and fast, crazy good memories of those times because they were so shocking and so overwhelming. I know you're like, how can both things happen? How can we have some people do this and some people do that way? people are different. We respond differently to stress. Also note that some people have different levels of resilience and different ways to cope. I've had patients who talk about, you know, being sexually abused as a kid and telling someone like right away. And so the sexual abuse only lasted for like a couple of months or something. And they have felt nothing about it. It was like, well, whatever. And they have detailed memory of that experience. And then I have other people who have no memory before the age of 10 
and, you know, still feel hypervigilant after years of therapy. I know it sucks to be on, you know, the side where we're having a really tough time and memories are hard to recall and all of that, but it doesn't make the trauma any better or worse. It's just our own experience of it. It's how we, it's how our brain has decided to process it based on the tools and the resources that we have. Now, I know that's a sucky answer, but that's just the truth. Uh, trauma memories can be stored in a lot of different areas of our brain. We don't fully understand it, but we just know that different brains do different things. And for whatever reason, it, like a good example of this, and I talk about this in the book, and that's why I was reading uh, research about this, is that the natural built-in resilience and ability to cope, like being able to talk to people about what happened from a young age or reaching out for support or getting into a sport and having those people or getting really involved in band or some kind of art. You know, some of us are very resourceful from a young age, leaning into school, uh, staying over at friends' houses so we aren't put in that situation. Like some of us are super fucking resourceful. Others are not. And that's why we have siblings that will grow up in the exact same abusive situation. One struggles to get their life together and remember anything, maybe has flashbacks constantly, has horrible symptoms of complex PTSD. And the other one, you know, had a little depression and here and there, got into therapy, has been okay and is successful and, you know, out in the world. They can both exist because people are so different. Again, I know that's a sucky response, but but that's what we know. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. It says, hi, Katie, when does someone need a safety plan? And do you legally have to make one if you need it? Now, for those of you who are wondering what a safety plan is, a safety plan is something that we create when someone is a danger to themselves or others possibly, but I've actually never, knock on wood, never had a patient that was a danger to someone else. But we put safety plans in place. I do for my patients who have suicidal thoughts or my patients who self-injure and, and even my eating disorder patients too sometimes, just depending on what's happening. And a safety plan is something that would have some coping skills like impulse logs, resources, people to reach out to, crisis text line, maybe suicide hotline, maybe my number or email because they should call or reach out to me, of course, because it's an emergency. They have to wait 30 minutes, you know, all these things that we're supposed to do and then then call, whatever. So. We need a safety plan. Honestly, for me, I, I put a safety plan in place as soon as I know that they've had the thoughts. Now, it's not because I think it's a high risk, right? Like sometimes we just have these suicidal thoughts that just float on by or thoughts of self-injury, but we don't have to engage with it, but they're there, right? We that's That is not to say like, oh, that's normal. Everybody has it. Not everybody has it, but it's a very common thing. And I don't really stress about it as a therapist. I don't worry about it if my patient's not worried about it. You know what I mean? I'm going to talk to them about it. I'm going to check in on them and I'm going to put a safety plan together then because what's that old, I think it's like Roosevelt said, the time to patch the roof is when the sun is shining. We need to create a safety plan when you're not in crisis. So as soon as I know suicidal thoughts are part of what you're struggling with, I'm going to work with you to create a safety plan. I'm going to do that pretty quickly because you're you're okay, but we're still aware of them. Maybe you already have some information around when they happen or what they're around and we can build that into the safety plan, making sure people are available at that time or we have some resources for when you're doing certain things that are triggering or whatever. And yeah, so we'll do it when you're not in crisis and but when I know you have the suicidal thoughts and legally legally you don't really have to make it. You don't have to have one. Um it's more of an ethical thing. But you do have to, as a therapist, do some kind of documentation and checking in about suicidal thoughts and whether the threat is like imminent, if it's going to happen soon, if they have the means to do it, if they have a plan, like all of this stuff. You do have to document, meaning I have to talk to you about that and gain that information. And then I have to write it down in the notes and let people know that I did actually ask and we did talk about it. Um, but it legally, I mean, I always do them like. 100% of the time I've done them, but I don't think legally it's something that we're required to do. We just have to be checking in on you and have some ways for, you know, uh, you have to have access to like the hospital or whatever you were going to do to take care of yourself. Does that make sense? I hope so. But if you have follow-ups, let me know. Okay. Question number seven says, Hey Katie, I've recently started going to therapy and was given homework, which kind of sucks. <laughs> I always give homework. So I'm glad they did that. Anyways, I was asked to write a letter or at least think of what to say to my inner child. 
I like this. I know you hate it, but I really like this. I was told I have social anxiety and that I should think of things that I could say to my inner child that would have helped me when I was younger. Yeah, you're like, you're parenting your child now because you're the adult, which I know sounds really woo-woo and weird, but it really works. Okay. Um, but I can't think of anything. So they were supposed to think of some things they could say that would help have helped her when she was younger, but I can't think of anything. I don't see any complaints or complaint like things um, working as these types of things just make me feel uncomfortable, bad or annoyed because it is either just weird or I think um, they don't mean it and other things along those lines. I don't see anything like it. Uh, it doesn't matter what other people think working because I know it should I'm so confused. Okay. I don't see any complaints or complaint like things working. I gotcha. Okay. Compliment, I think maybe. Um, yes, I think it means compliments. Um, it doesn't matter what other people think working because I know it shouldn't, but it still does. All I can think is to say, just suck it up or lie or say something would help it when it wouldn't. Any ideas would be helpful. Thanks. Okay. And sorry, I had a difficult time reading that one, but Inner child work is uncomfortable and it feels weird and it's hard and people hate it, but it's really, really healing. And here's why. When something happens to us when we're younger, like I was talking about earlier, we go into fight, flight, freeze, and often we go into freeze because we're too small to fight back and we don't always have the ability to leave, right? Because we don't really have the means to do those things. So we go into freeze. We feel hopeless, helpless, powerless, and it's a really terrible place to be. We feel horrible. And so that child of us, because usually we just stuff all the feelings and experiences down and we repress them so that we can pull ourselves out of the shitty situation and, and live our life and get away. Often we get away as quickly as we can, you know, and just try to survive. But then we start having flashbacks. We start feeling comfortable. Things start to pop up because the inner child of us that never got to be soothed, never got to be heard, never got validated for how they felt finally realizes that, hey, you know, we're kind of safe now. Like we're out. No one's hurting us right now. Things are okay. We have our own place or, you know, we have a job. Now I need something from you, right? It's been silent and stuffed down for so long. Now it needs to speak. And so doing that work where we tap into that younger part of ourselves. And I I think inner child is maybe why people don't like it. Maybe we just talk, call it like tapping into that part of you that lived through that. That maybe that helps a little bit because if we can write a letter, because you said you're supposed to write a letter to your inner child. So if you could write a letter to your to to that you that went through that, like you you know that you because it's still you. So how did you feel during that? Maybe first it's easier to write a letter from that child of you to you now. Like tell me what you're going through. How are you feeling? What's happening? All of that. Write that out. Then write back to that as if that is your own child. I find that helps a lot of people. If you imagine that that's like your own child that you gave birth to or adopted, it's your own baby. How would I talk to that like three-year-old or six-year-old kid? What would I say? Even me as someone who doesn't even have children, if I imagine six-year-old me, sometimes it helps to get photos out. Then you can actually see what you look like at that age. You can look at that child of you and imagine talking to that kid as an adult and be like, you know, something you can be more compassionate and understanding like, wow, I was so small. Because in my head, I felt like I should have done something more. Or like I should have spoke up or like, I can't believe I just left my sister in that situation. We can have all this shame and guilt around abuse, right? Especially and we could think we should have done something else. But when you see that picture of how little you were, and who you you know, and then you think back to how you felt, then you can feel bad for that child. And then that child, you need to talk to it and say, I'm so sorry you went through that. That must have been horrible. You know, and this inner child work right now, it may not be good for you. It may not work. It doesn't work for everyone. Just like nothing, you know, nothing is 100% effective. But I do think it is important for all of us to have some kind of conversation with that inner child of us. Like my inner child is was definitely very stubborn and very, I got angry quickly. That's how I was. I threw tantrums a lot. Um, I actually love to be alone. Hello, introvert. But I love to be alone. So my mom putting me in timeout just like didn't do anything for me because I was like, yes, I can just hang out here. Um, I remember that. And I remember like hoping to get put in timeout. Sometimes I would do stuff just so I wouldn't have to engage with 
my brother and other kids. It's just weird stuff, right? And so you think about that child of you and how you were and how you interacted with the world. And times I was scared because every child gets scared. You know, um, I remember I had this creepy teacher in second grade and I didn't like him and I don't know why. He, I don't recall him ever doing anything to anybody, but he just, he liked, he had slugs as pets for, you know, we usually had hamsters. He had slugs. It grossed me out. And I told him, mom, he creeped me out. I didn't like him. And I remember that vividly, right? I remember this whole situation. So child of me, I need to say to her, I understand he's creepy. Slugs are creepy, you know, but, it, but is he a good teacher? Is he okay? Is he friendly to you? You know, I need to hear her out. I need to validate how she's feeling. I need to ask questions. I need to seek to understand just like a parent would. So in a way, how would you as a parent, like, what would you say to that child of you that had been through that? I know it's uncomfortable. I know that you hate it but maybe that will help spark something. And I know a lot of people had questions about inner child stuff because what does it mean? And, and that's really what it is, is just, it's part of that healing. You know, we talked about at the beginning, like processing through that trauma. Some of that is healing that child of us that went through it. She hasn't been listened to ever, or he hasn't been listened to forever. So listen to that child, you know, of us, see what they have to say and validate it and kind of do the thing that you had wished someone had done for you back then. Okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie. In my last therapy session, I was very down and I asked my therapist, what if working through my trauma won't help? Feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? What if I'll resolve my trauma, but keep being depressed? She replied that she thinks I asked that because I'm still minimizing my trauma. Hmm. So my question is, why is it so normal to minimize your trauma and how can you stop doing it? I thought I'd stop doing it, but if I hadn't, if I haven't, how can you know you've worked through your trauma if you're just minimizing it again? This is a great question. And the reason that it's so normal to minimize our trauma is because acknowledging it for what it was at the time was too overwhelming. Hence, repressed memories. Hence, having to do that inner child work and that inner child not being listened to. We we minimize our trauma as a way to cope and as a way to move past it and to try to just like ugh, stuff it down and you know, shove it under the rug and move on. It's almost like, uh, you know, if our trauma, I mean, the best example is obviously the elephant in the room. People talk about that a lot. Like it came in as a baby and it keeps growing and you're like walking around it pretending like what elephant, what do you mean? Like trying to make your life happen while you have this huge elephant in your home. But I think when it comes to this, it's like, you're trying to shove that elephant into like this little box because you're like, well, if I can just put it, fit it in this box, this box is the right box. This is the box that will fit in, but put it in this box and then I'm going to put it on this shelf and then forget about it. <laughs> I'll process it later. No, I won't. But the elephant won't fit and it keeps breaking out of that box. And your therapist is calling you out on it while you're like sitting there with like a huge elephant trying to shove it in this box. And let's imagine a stuffed elephant because nobody wants to hurt elephants. But you know, it's like, it just won't fit. It, you know, things just don't fit. And you're doing your best. You know, it's like trying to close a suitcase when it has too many clothes and it's just not going to work. So, and you're like sitting on it, trying to shove stuff in. And your therapist is like, hey, you're doing that thing again. And you're like, what do you mean? It should fit here. What do you mean? Um, I'm not doing that thing. And she's like, yeah, you are. So it's very normal because of that, because it helps for us to shove things away, helps us to minimize them and put them in a box and stuff them so that we don't have to deal with them. And noticing when you're doing it is key. And the fact that your therapist is able to see you doing it and call it out is really helpful. And as uncomfortable as it is, I would encourage you to try to tell your therapist, hey, thank you. Please keep telling me when I do this because I don't know I'm doing it. And that will be really helpful. That's part of what being a, like, that's what I go to my therapist for, to be honest, is to have her be like, hey, you're doing that thing again. I'm like, oh, shit, I am. Right. Because I won't notice. I'll just, I'm so used to doing it. I'll just do it. Right but she'll call me out. And so it's okay to not know, but have your therapist call you out. And then, you know, be curious and not judgmental. Okay. Curious, not judgmental about it. So I want you to, to track back, like even with your therapist, you can be like, I was, wasn't I? How do I get caught in that? What is it that I do first? And just think back into the way that you talked about whatever it was. Is it that you say, you know, just, that's a very powerful word, the word just. It was just that one time, or it only, only is another powerful word. It was only, you know, it only happened to me for just like a year. Like people have it worse. Are we comparing to others? What are we doing? So pay attention and write those things down so that we can start to have more 
awareness of when we're minimizing. Okay. And, and that's, you know, that's how we work through it. Acknowledging our trauma for what it is all at once is overwhelming, can cause us to to dissociate, have panic attacks. Don't think that just because you're doing this, that you're not making any progress. This is part of your healing. This is part of your progress. And so pay attention, have your therapist keep calling you out, even though it's uncomfortable, be curious, not judgmental about it. And notice what you tell yourself. Is it the just, the onlys? Is it, you know, people have it worse? Are we comparing? What are we doing? How are we minimizing? And then, you know, once we know that, then we can try to not do it. Meaning when we find ourselves saying the word just or comparing to someone else, we can out loud in therapy be like, I know I'm doing that thing again. No. And then what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to reframe with real truth. So if that minimization of trauma was, you know, I was only abused for a year and then he got sent to prison. So it wasn't that bad, right? Okay, let's say that's my minimization sentence. Then if I'm trying to not do that, when I say, well, you know, it just happened for one year, I can say, oh, I'm doing that thing again, I'm minimizing. And then I have to be honest, right? So my next statement should be something more honest where I'm like, that year was horrible. It really, I feel like in a lot of ways it ruined my life and it's hard for me to admit that sometimes. Now I know you might not be able to d- dig right in and be honest like that, but maybe in journal form we can be, or maybe just a little bit in therapy, our therapist can at least even just noticing and stopping it and trying to get into a more honest place. It, those are leaps and bounds. That's huge progress, like 10 out of 10, like five gold stars. You're killing it. You're doing great. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. It does get better. Okay. Okay. Question number nine. Hey, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. I was in a session with my therapist a few weeks ago, and it was nearing the end when she asked me if I had anything else to share that was on my mind. I've been seeing her for a few months, and I finally got up the courage to tell her about how my dad used to hit me as a kid and all the anger issues he took out on me verbally and physically, something I've never told anyone. When I was telling her, I was shaking and sweating, and I could barely breathe because I was so anxious. I don't really remember much after that, probably dissociated, it's overwhelming, but it's been a few weeks since and she hasn't mentioned it once. I feel like by her not talking about it, it makes me feel like it wasn't as important as I originally thought. Do you have any reasons as to why she's waiting to bring it up? Also, do you have any tips for when she does bring it up again? Thank you for everything and lots of love from Canada. Oh, my Canadian friends. Okay, there were a lot of comments on this that were right in line with what I'm gonna say. So first of all, I'm so proud of you for saying that and for speaking it out, like saying it out loud, speaking up, telling her what happened. I know how hard that is. And that should not be diminished. That was huge. That was a huge success. Round of applause. Um, Now, because you had such a difficult time telling her, like you don't remember anything, you were uh, you know, sweating and shaking. I almost said swaking. I guess that's like sweating and shaking smushed together. So you're sweating and shaking, had a really tough time. My guess, and this is what the comments were, and this is, I would probably verbalize it to you and then do this, but maybe she's just afraid to even bring it up. Is it you being dissociated or overwhelmed in a fashion, like that kind of fashion isn't very therapeutic and it can actually be kind of re-traumatizing, overwhelming, right? Can't even stay present. So therefore we can't actually process it through. So my guess is until she feels like you're ready or until she's probably given it a few weeks to kind of like calm down and then maybe bring it up slowly with you again, she's just trying to minimize that or not even minimize. I guess she's trying to prevent that from happening again and maybe thinks that you're not quite ready to get into it. But trust me when I tell you she has not forgotten and it is not thinking that this is not important. It maybe is just not where we're at yet. Okay. However, I would encourage you if you can, no pressure, if you can't to say this to her, to say, I brought up that horrible thing a few weeks ago. We don't even have to name it if you're not ready. I brought up the horrible thing a few weeks ago. I know I like dissociated or had a panic attack or something while telling you I felt really overwhelmed, sweaty and over shaking. How come you haven't brought it up again? That's fair. Because I, I'm being honest here. If, if you were my patient, when you came back the next week, I would what I would say is and because I've done this with patients, we call kind of like what you did, like a doorknob confession, like right before the end of session, you dump something because we don't want to talk about it yet, but I need to get it out. And those are super common. And my policy on that is obviously I take my notes on it. And at the very beginning of the next session, I say, I want to thank you for being so brave and sharing that with me. Something to this effect, you know, it's not like verbatim or anything, but I want you, thank you for being so brave and sharing that with me. I want you to know we will circle back on that, but I want to build on some other things first. Is that okay? 
because it's not my treatment. It's your treatment. And so I want to make sure that what I'm planning is okay with you because I have had like two patients come to mind that were like, no, I want to talk about it now. Okay, that's fair. It's your time. It's your treatment. And if you want to do that now, I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. Okay. But sometimes, you know, like I said, that's two patients and by and large, most of my patients are like, okay, yeah. Uh, but some of them even will be like, can you give me a heads up like the week before? And I can do that too. So I think it's worth bringing up so that you can hopefully have that conversation and feel good about it. Like you're in charge of your own treatment and recovery. Um, and then when she does bring it up again, I think the biggest thing for you, and it might be what she's working on, by the way, is building up your your like ability to soothe yourself or your coping skills, or we call them resources a lot. And everybody kind of hates that word and has a tough time with them, but we need resources, right? We need uh, ways to feel better. Maybe that's like you bring a blanket in or she has a blanket in her office if you're able to go into office now. Um, maybe it's a breathing, like belly breathing. Maybe it's um, a change of subject or a silly putty in your hand, or maybe it's some grounding techniques we need to learn. There can be tools and techniques that we can get comfortable using so that when we start to talk about that stuff, we're able to stay present. So we remember what's happening, right? Because it can't process if we're dissociated. Um, and just help you soothe to get through it, really. So everybody's going to be different. These can be all sorts of different things. Um, I had a patient that used to bring in this candle that we would light at the beginning of session, and that smell would bring her back, or like a roller bar ball of uh, essential oils. One member of our community told me that bergamot, the smell of bergamot, is really grounding. I've used peppermint over the years for many of my patients, and they found that to be helpful. Um, honestly, any smell, but bergamot, I guess is supposed to trigger our senses. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Cause that's a really, if that's works for you, that's really, really cool. Um, and something you can easily make ha like happen for yourself. You can buy essential oils online for not very much. And you can also buy roller balls. I saw one at whole foods, which is, is an expensive store. That, like this is before COVID, but like a year ago for two ninety nine, empty roller ball, you can pour your essential oils in it. Um, and use it to smell and help bring you back. So there's some things that we can learn so that we can manage and stay present while we keep working through it. Cool. It'll get better. I promise. I'm really proud of you. I'm really proud of you for bringing that up. I know how hard that is. So yay. Okay. Final question. Question number 10. Hi, Katie. As a therapist, how would you feel if a client you had been seeing for four months suddenly gave, gave you a list of things that they've been struggling with, but keeping from you? I binge eat, I pick my skin, and I have intensive, intru intense intrusive thoughts. I have never brought these up to my therapist, but they've all gotten really bad recently and I am struggling a lot. I feel like I'm wasting time in my sessions at the minute because I feel like my therapist thinks I'm doing better than I am. Probably. I know she shouldn't think too much about, I know I shouldn't think too much about my therapist's feelings, but I can't help but feel that she will be annoyed at me for keeping this from her for so long. It's like a vicious cycle. Has this ever happened to you? Oh, let me count the ways so many times where a, where a client has suddenly told you something that they've been struggling with and keeping from you. Hope this makes sense. And I hope you're well. Oh my God. If I got paid extra for every time this happened to you guys, I'd be a bajillionaire. This happens all the time. And I want you to know that it happens all the time. I'm not, uh, I'm not exaggerating. So you telling that to your therapist and giving her that she's going to be like, thank you right? It's so helpful. The more information we have, the more we can help you. I mean, you can apologize about it. If you feel like I had a patient one time apologize and then tell me, you know, that she just never felt safe telling me about the sexual abuse she sustained as a child. Okay. And that, you know, that was kind of, she was binge eating and there was a bunch of stuff that came along with it. Kind of like what you're talking about. Like, you know, I pick my skin, I binge eat and I have these intrusive thoughts. She had all this stuff that was happening. I had no idea. I thought we were dealing with anxiety because she'd come in because she was struggling at school and test taking and stuff. I was super grateful because I felt like she wasn't either wasn't making progress or didn't really need to be seen. And I wasn't really sure. So your therapist would probably be like, oh, so helpful. Thank you. But my patient, when she did that, she was like, I'm so sorry, but I haven't been telling you the whole truth. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Well, what's going on? Therapists are not there to judge. It's nothing personal. This is your time. This is your treatment. And I'm here to help facilitate a healthy, happy life for you. The more information you can give me, the better. So there's no reason that I would be upset or stressed out or overwhelmed or anything for you all of a sudden telling me things that you hadn't told me. I truthfully would be grateful 
and excited to continue our work together. Okay. And that's me being fully honest. This happens all the time. Like I had a patient forever that was supposed to be, uh, cause he struggled with binge eating disorder was supposed to be like having these snacks and meals. And he was telling me it was going all great. And I had him go get a checkup at his doctor's cause he had high blood pressure and stuff we were monitoring and he gained weight. And I was like, Oh, that's really a bummer. And I was trying to get him in to see a dietitian. And then I had his mom come into a session and tell me he wasn't doing any of that stuff. And he was just like, you know, he ordered two pizzas last night and had been ordering Chinese food and keeping it in the fridge in his room and not telling her, but she found it. And so that was helpful. I was like, oh, okay. So the tools and the things that we're doing aren't working. We're still struggling. Let's go back to the, you know, the thought process behind it and those triggers, because those are clearly not as well managed as we thought. It's all helpful. And I just give you those few examples so that you know that it is common. I'm not exaggerating. It happens all the time. She'll be super grateful. And that, uh, like I've told, I've said this over the years, but like a therapist can only help us with what we tell them about. And that's the truth. So be as honest and open as you can, even if you have to write it down and just, yeah, like give a list of things that will help her better help you. It's almost like that old, like, isn't that, was it that old uh, movie, Jerry Maguire, where he's like, help me help you. That's how therapists are. We're like, help me help you. Tell me what's going on so I can be there for you and offer actual helpful tools and techniques and resources. Um, so yeah, don't worry. And I wouldn't be upset. So I'm pretty sure your therapist isn't going to be either. And that's it for today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. Your questions as always are wonderful and just so thoughtful and great. I hope some of this information helps you feel better or helps you support someone else that you love. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. Bye. Or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.